0: All right, everyone. Welcome back. This is Ryan Selkis, and you're listening to Masari's Unqualified Opinions, where each week I interview crypto's top builders, investors, and personalities to discuss the key trends in the industry. You can discover more about Masari at masari.io. But for now, let's get right into the episode. It's going to be a good one. This podcast is presented by BlockWorks Group, one of the top blockchain events and media production companies I've worked with. For exclusive content and events that could help you with insight into the crypto and blockchain space, check them out at blockworksgroup.io and you will not be disappointed. All right, everyone, welcome back. Uh, Very, very excited uh, for this controversial, some would say toxic interview that we're going to have today uh, with Samson Mao. I've known for for quite a while as the chief strategy at Blockstream. There is so much uh, to unpack as we think about 2020. Uh, what is um, going to be going on at, at Blockstream, some new developments to think about for, from them as, uh, as a company, uh, but maybe much more importantly, uh, what to expect for Bitcoin more broadly. Um, Samson has a rich history uh, as a uh, sometimes internet, I don't want to say troll, I'll say troll, you can live with it, um, but, uh, but certainly one of the most influential marketers and um, memesters during uh, some of the great uh, battles in 2017 uh, and, and even earlier regarding Bitcoin scaling. Um, I happen to be on Samson's side, although I was not an employee of, of Blockstream. Uh, because, Are you sure? Oh, I, I, I am well documented as being part of the, the UASF crowd. We're going to get into that in a minute, um, but we'll go through the whole history and I'll give you, I'll, I'll, I'll give folks, you know, a little bit of flavor for for how I thought about this problem, um, and and generally, you know, how the dust has settled and, and what the results have been. But um, before uh, I give my take, for first off, uh, I want to welcome Samson. Thanks for joining, and 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 let's start all the way back. Right. So, um, how did you first get into this industry and 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 walk through a little bit of the early path? Um, to uh, to get where where you are today, because you've you've been now at, at a couple of the most important companies. You've you've kind of seen um, the east west divide, you know, up up close and personal. Um, obviously, very very close to the pulse uh, during the you know arguably Bitcoin's you know greatest battle that it's had um, in the uh, divergence of the community around the, the block scaling debate, um, but. Let's start with the basics, right? So who is, who is Samson Mao?
1: I'm just a guy working <laughs> at Blockstream. <laughs> so those, those are a lot of questions. I'll try to remember, let's see. So I first got into Bitcoin, I would say, officially towards the end of 2014. And uh, I joined BTC China first as an advisor. And then I switched over to being COO. And BTC China, if you don't know, was one of the largest exchanges and mining pools I think, in the past. Uh, it rose to prominence after Mt. Gox was hacked. So everyone just jumped over to BTC China and started trading there. And it was one of the like three big Chinese exchanges back in the day, uh, OK, Coin, Huobi, and BTCC. So after I joined, I did a lot of rebranding, uh, positioned it more for an international marketplace, uh, launched the mining pool and grew the mining pool. Uh, I think largest, we were like 18 or something percent of the network cash rate. and. And yeah, so I've been around during that time. I left uh, BTCC to join Blockstream. I think that was in 2017, around the time the PBOC shut down all the Chinese exchanges for Mm -hmm. uh, serving customers in China. And I guess throughout that time, I was also involved in a lot of those things that you mentioned, like the scaling debate or Bitcoin civil war, as some call it too. Mm-hmm. And I did make some memes back in the day, but uh, don't do that as much these days because it's uh, time consuming and I have a few things I'm into and working on.
0: Well, the dust is also settled uh, for sure. So it may, may be mes- uh, of, of less importance to, uh, to to roll up your sleeves and and uh, and, and do battle on a daily basis like, uh, like we saw in 2017 from all sides, not just you. Yeah. Um, what is Blockstream? Right. So I, I think even folks in the industry who know a little bit about Blockstream or, or, you know, what the company has done, um, some can view it as a black box uh, or, you know, at, at worst with suspicion. Um, and part of it probably dates back to to some of these battles and, and um, some of the, the stylistic elements of, of um how Blockstream and, and some of the developers on that team, you know, approach this conversation, but um, but but walk through the history of, of Blockstream itself, and then how you kind of came um, into the leadership ranks uh, a couple of years back, and 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 really where the company's positioned today.
1: Right. So Blockstream, I like to introduce it as a Bitcoin infrastructure company, and sometimes I'll say Bitcoin and blockchain infrastructure, depending on who I'm talking to. But largely, we work on a lot of things to do with Bitcoin at the protocol level, technologies on top of it, wallets in the ecosystem. And we recently got into mining as well that we announced this year. That was our big reveal. But... uh, I would say overall, Blockstream does a lot of things to augment Bitcoin in a lot of ways. So the Liquid Network is also another one of those things that we think helps the ecosystem. Um, But Blockstream is also, I think, misunderstood. uh, And we're often the subject of a lot of conspiracy theories, as you mentioned. (laughs) I think it largely has to do with uh, who the company was when it was founded. So it was founded in 2014 by Dr. Adam Back and a lot of other Bitcoin core developers. And a lot of people took that to be like, um, you know, the Bitcoin core developers are creating a company and this is going to co-opt Bitcoin and a lot of conspiracy theories rose out of that We have a whole subreddit dedicated to us uh, Rogers subreddit and you know, I still think we get a lot of conspiracy theories and things attributed to Blockstream, which are broadly laughable and mildly entertaining at best mm-hmm. And uh, I think even there's uh, something that came out today where Craig Wright was uh, telling the court that uh, Blockstream hacked him and he wants discovery on communications between IRA and, and uh, Blockstream and uh, <laughs> Bitcoin developers. Uh,
0: so th- there, there's a lot to unpack there. So, you know, most people know uh, Craig Wright uh, as uh, Satoshi Nakamoto, of course, uh, or, or <laughs> you, you, you may dispute that claim. Um but uh, there is an ongoing case in Florida uh, where uh, and another early contributor, early Bitcoiner, Ira Kleinman, who passed away, uh, was allegedly a business partner of Craig Wright's. And they dispute some, you know, million Bitcoin uh, are are currently held in this trust that Craig has access to that he can't prove. And he submitted fraudulent documents and it's been yeah. you know, kind of a chaotic mess. So, But Ira natural- well,
1: was not actually a Bitcoin developer. I think he might have been... Into Bitcoin, but he never contributed anything in any significant way. Oh, I sure, yeah, uh,
0: is- early, early community member, right? So, um, yeah. What, what is interesting uh, about Craig uh, jokes aside is that he was so early. Um, uh, I think that that point is not necessarily uh, objected. Uh, there's 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 not many objections to uh, whether he was in early. Uh, the the primary objections are uh, he's not Satoshi.
1: Well, when the big claim is that he's Satoshi, he's got more money than your entire country, I think yeah. people don't really care about when he got into it at that
0: point. Exactly, exactly.
1: Um, so, uh,
0: back to Blockstream, though, You know, the, some of the uh, conspiracy theories, uh, as, as you put it, are really um, centered around how much of the core developer community. Um, was employed, especially early on at the founding of, of Blockstream. So, uh, for for people that you know might be newer to the industry, um, a bit of, of history here. Blockstream was formed in 2014, but raised money and, and really started to um, aggregate this this collection of, of pretty high profile Bitcoin Core developers and contributors um, in 2015. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, Matt Carollo. Um, uh, obviously, uh, Adam, uh, who you mentioned, Greg Maxwell, uh, a number of others uh, were, were all on this core team. And at the time, it was basically Blockstream, some individual contributors, and a couple of people at MIT. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, until there was another uh, company in, uh, called Chaincode uh, Labs in New York that, that absorbed some of those developers. So, um, on the one hand. Yeah, now now Square. Um, so it is kind of gradually, you know, decentralizing. I guess, but but at the time, uh, Blockstream certainly did command a, a high percentage of of influencer core developers, um, and uh, and and the flip side of that was it was at a time where no one was really writing checks to actually build out the the core <laughs> protocol. So yeah. so so th- this company was funded uh, by Silicon Valley insiders that you know viewed this as as a um, a, an investment in their investment, I'd say, uh, for for you know the most part, and then you know quite a bit of optionality because the th- thesis was you know maybe this could be a Red Hat um, type of business, I, I suppose, with a lot of optionality in terms of tools and, and applications that were built on top or around Bitcoin. Um, that uh, that thesis was it made a lot of sense, uh, and it certainly you know got a, a good deal with pickup and. The, the issue was things pretty quickly started to go south from a, at least a brand or, or perception standpoint um, as this you know scaling battle uh, really started to pick up in mass. so uh, it's really hard to do I, I, I know uh, at least one of uh, our friends on the editorial side is probably I hope going to write a book about this because it'll be fantastic if he does um, but in in just a couple of minutes can can you just recount from your perspective? like this saga and how it started because you really had, um, one of the most unique views, uh, into this over a multi-year period, having been at BTCC and then over at Blockstream. Um, so knowing the the Chinese market and the mining market very well, and then obviously the core development market at, at, uh, at Blockstream.
1: Mm-hmm. So let's see. Yeah. I, I think your summary is pretty spot on. Um, there were definitely a lot of core developers. People saw the company in a certain way, but at the same time, when Blockstream was founded, there was no funding to build anything. So people had to support the, themselves with other jobs or just to work on this in their spare time or mm-hmm. you know, just try to fit it into life somehow. And I think with the founding of Blockstream, to develop sidechain technology that is powering Liquid, and to work on bitcoin is kind of a a type of synergy so those people that invested early on in the seed round were in a way funding development of this tech that benefits themselves and the larger ecosystem Mm -hmm. as well as building on things that we can commercialize down the road like red hat where you can service open source technology and i think uh, it it kind of did kick off the trend to have uh, companies building up around the space to have developers like ChainCode, as you mentioned, and then now with Square Crypto, which is also doing the same thing. So it kind of, I think we were the first to show this model and it's propagated a lot more and it is a lot better for the ecosystem too. I don't think it was the plan to like get all the developers into one room and like hijack Bitcoin and commercialize the tech, but it was just, they all worked together on open source stuff before. Um, they could create a company and fund their work on both commercial aspects and non-commercial aspects. It's like the open source part. And I think a lot of the FUD and misunderstanding is like how open source development works. And uh, people familiar with Linux and Red Hat, obviously they'd understand, but for a large chunk of, I guess, the fintech ecosystem or even the financial system, uh, financial industry, it's probably new to them and they don't really know how it works. So even if you have a lot of uh, developers in one company. It doesn't mean that they've co-opted the project because there's still other people outside in, in the community uh, contributing. It's a transparent process. It's a meritocracy and everything is open and all the work done is also open source too. So it, fundamentally, I think that was what kicked off a lot of that civil war and scaling debate. One side, you have people not understanding how to scale this new technology. And the other side, is just, uh, you're just fearful of this group because it looks like it's uh, powerful and dominating, but it doesn't really apply to open source, I think.
0: Um, so let's talk about that other side of the market because you, you also knew the mining community in China very well. Um, and the original split um, uh, in terms of factions was was over something that that seems very trivial, uh, the, the block size. So basically the, the, the amount of transactions that could be processed or the amount of data that could be processed in a single block was at one point early in Bitcoin's lifetime, artificially constrained by Satoshi because there were spam attacks, right? So he soft forked in a, a, a cap on the number of transactions and the, the data package it could be delivered per block. And voila, we had one megabyte blocks. So as those blocks started to fill, um, the industry was at a crossroads. Do you keep the fees low? Do you ensure that... Um, it is easy to process payments uh, and, and high number of transactions, uh, and increase the size of and uh, the amount of data per block, increasing the size of, uh, and, and bandwidth and storage requirements that it takes to actually store the, the blockchain itself. Or um, do you come up with other workarounds? and this this kind of there was a few iterations here right i remember the the 248s you know proposal and it was like segwits and then it was flex you know, caps. segwit segwits 2x flexcaps so um, but at, but at the core um, at least at first it, it seemed to be that the the mining community predominantly from china was um, was a strong proponent of increasing the block sizes uh, whereas the core development groups were taking a more um, cautious approach, uh, explain that dynamic and and you know on the part of the miners, you know, kind of really where where their mentality was at the time, um, and and maybe how things culturally broke down because it, it does seem that some of this was um, mistrust that that just got out of control um, after a few kind of early disagreements or misunderstandings.
1: Uh-huh. So I think the whole thing largely kicked off uh, from the developer side. So it was Gavin Andreessen and Mike Hearn that first started mm-hmm. pushing uh, Bitcoin XT when they couldn't reach a uh, consensus with the bulk of the Bitcoin core developers. Mm-hmm. And I still remember like running C pool, I think forgot who it was, either Hearn or Andreessen. I think it was Hearn. He reached out and said, It's time to upgrade to XT. And that was basically the moment I got sucked into the drama. And we had to deal with it. And back then, the communi- communication channels were not very good. As you mentioned, there's a very big divide. The developers, Bitcoin Core developers, were pretty much isolated in their own world. And there was not much out- outreach. And then you had like Hearn and Andreessen pushing this thing. So from the China perspective, it was like, okay, the developers are saying this thing without fully understanding who they are in regards to the other developers in the project and the dynamic of how open source software works. So that was what kicked it off, I think. And from there it just kind of snowballed. And I guess there, it did become this kind of minor versus developer thing, but I think Jihan Wu had a lot to do with that. The, co-CEO of Bitmain now back to CEO of Bitmain I don't know but he drove a lot of that um, divide and rallying in uh, China to, to I guess fire the developers but um, there's also you know people on the west side that uh, the western side that drove it too like Brian Armstrong pushing for mm-hmm. firing the core developers I think that phrase was tossed out quite a few times but uh, yeah it's a uh, it was a very complex thing and it had to do with poor communications and information Mm -hmm. asymmetry too. Um, I think, you know, what Masari does to add transparency is good because it helps you see what's happening. But back then, obviously, there was not that much information, communications or anything. So you have people in China saying, you know, we're gonna do this. And a lot of people, first of all, don't understand how mining works. So a Mm -hmm. pool operator can say whatever they want, but they can't piss off their customers, right? Mm -hmm. They can't speak on behalf of their customers, which are the actual miners. And then you also have a a lot of opacity around who is in charge of what and do they actually represent a significant amount of people or should they be saying the kind of things that they're saying? And I think at that era, that was all, you know, it was a free for all. Everyone could just stand up and say, I I decide this. And then people in the West would get freaked out and go, oh, the miners are gonna do something. And it just caused a lot of drama. Uh,
0: You know, for there's there's still uh i think a lot of scar tissue from some of the businesses that were impacted from from you know some of the personalities that lost right um and it's kind of impossible to know how things would have worked out if um if the the block size had been increased but but technically speaking you know why was there such a hard line in the sand over this you know seemingly trivial issue okay that the you know, we're, we're a victim of our own success. The blocks are filling up because more people care about Bitcoin, because the market cap has gone from nothing to tens of billions of dollars at that time. Um, it, it it seems like a relatively trivial change to go from one to two megabytes per block, especially if you compare it to some of the other blockchains uh, that are, are being run right now. They're completely centralized. What... Um, Especially with like Moore's law, right? You'd expect, okay, you should be able to increase the size without it really causing too much of a headache um, as you know storage gets you know uh, cheaper and, and and bandwidth gets faster. So, um, what 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 really uh, drove this? Uh, because it's still a point of contention, whether this was something that set the industry back and we'll just kind of never know what could have been or, or if it's kind of in the past and, you know, let's focus on layer two. Right.
1: So I think it's largely two things. The first thing is the misconception that Bitcoin is a payments network, that transactions have to be fast and cheap or else the network will stop growing. And I think it It it, uh, is driven a lot by early adopters for Bitcoin Mm -hmm. that were using it for payments, and they're waiting for confirmations. And I guess that was how they first encountered Bitcoin. Like when this technology was in its infancy, yes, no one was using it. So it was really fast and cheap. But if people are using it, then obviously the fees will go up because there is a limit on the block size. Mm-hmm. But I think they're conflating a settlement network with a payments network. And if you look at the design of Bitcoin, it's really a settlement network because it, the blocks are 10 minutes. They're, they are variable in time. You can get a block every hour if uh, thing, if you're not lucky. But there's no guarantee it's 10 minutes. And even 10 minutes, you wouldn't go and buy a coffee and wait for 10 minutes for the merchant, right, to mm-hmm. confirm. So I think that's one part of it. And that helped, the uh, I guess, fuel the fire because people don't really understand what Bitcoin is. It's uh, uncensorable digital gold. It's not, you know, uh, coffee money or whatever. The mm. other part is it, it sounds easy to change. Like we want to scale up the transactions. We want to have more throughput. Let's just make the blocks bigger. But by design, Bitcoin is very hard to change unless you're willing to fork off part of the network and alienate them. and. I think that misunderstanding also threw a lot of fuel in the fire too, because the argument sounds so simple, like the developers didn't do this, they're bad. But the thing is developers can't do that because they don't control the network. And this goes back to my point about open source software. They can recommend something, but they're not going to recommend something they don't believe in or they think is uh, unethical or malicious. So Mm -hmm. they can't. But then that inaction to some people, and the miners particularly, certain people in China, thought that they are trying to stifle the network or kill the network. Mm-hmm. And that goes back into, it feeds back into the blockchain conspiracy, which is these guys are trying to make sidechains. And that is uh, why they're stifling the block size and keeping it low so that people buy their technology. So well, let's, it's, let's, a, it's a lot of different things.
0: Let, let's talk about the literal black box as like a little sidebar here because this is a narrative that I'd heard behind closed doors, right? Like, no, you don't understand Blockstream is selling a box and this magical box is how they're going to make all their money. So if the you know, block size increases, um, this is going to jeopardize this business line for them. Um, and that box is basically the hardware that supports Liquid, correct? Yeah. So, so, so let's talk very quickly about liquid. It, it's, it's. Uh, I think uh, um, not a run of the mill product. It's, it's, it's. Uh, I think interesting and, and uh, has it seems uh, uh, some some decent usage early on. But, um, but let's talk about liquid so that people can understand why there might be this conspiracy theory around uh, this particular element.
1: Right. So Liquid is a sidechain. So blockchain was founded based on the sidechain's white paper, talking about how you can have a blockchain anchored to another blockchain. So a sidechain is really a blockchain without its own native currency. And the native currency of Liquid is, of course, Bitcoin. So you have to lock up Bitcoin on the main chain to unlock it in Liquid. And that's why there's a one-to-one relationship. And I guess uh, the conspiracy talk is that Voxstream wants the main chain to fail, so everyone migrates to Liquid. But that's definitely not the case because you still need that trustless settlement on the main chain. Liquid is an inter-exchange settlement layer meant to link together crypto exchanges. So if you're moving from, say, Bitfinex to Bitsy, uh, those are two of Liquid members and they've integrated, you don't actually need to go back down to the trustless layer, the base layer, the main chain, because you're moving from one custodian to another custodian. So you can use a federated chain which is you know, powered by that box. The box itself is a, it's, we call it a functionary box, and it's just a box that signs the blocks and extends mm-hmm. the Bitcoin, the Liquid sidechain. So, you know, it's, it's, not, it's uh, nothing magical, and I don't think it really detracts from Bitcoin. It's a way for people to trade better, and that's mm-hmm. also why Liquid has things like issued assets. So you can have things like stable coins issued in Liquid. Um, you can have uh, utility tokens, security tokens, whatever you want. And it's all for improved trading, faster trading, more reliable movement of things on chain, and Mm -hmm. also to do things like atomic swaps, where you can do a trade between liquid Bitcoin and liquid tether trustlessly, like between the two parties. So you don't have to trust a third party or a counterparty to hold your funds. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I mean, this is a technology that helps Bitcoin in the long run, because it can alleviate some stress on the main chain when Uh, A lot of people are trading, like uh, in the bull run, say the last bull run, the fees spiked because everyone was trying to move money back and forth. A lot of um, trading firms were overpaying fees because they want to be included in the next block because there's money to be made. So if you're making Mm -hmm. a trade for 100K to gain 100, win 100K or profit 100K, you're fine to pay $100 in fees, right? And that will... Game the fee estimation algorithm so that average people trying to you know buy something would be paying higher fees because they're pulling everything up with their mm-hmm. average cost. So Liquid helps with that in a way. But I don't think uh, scaling off-chain means that you need to damage the main chain. It's the same deal with Lightning. So we started investing in Lightning also in 2015, investing in research and development. We built our team, and we put a lot of resources into that, and now Lightning is out there. You could say the same thing, that Lightning takes away on-chain transactions, but if Bitcoin is going to reach billions of people, then there needs to be off-chain scaling. Otherwise, there's just no way to accommodate that many people and that much throughput.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, you know, it 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 makes sense uh, from a narrative standpoint, but I, I think the you know that was one element uh, that helped people um, doubt the intentions, uh, maybe of, of some of the folks at, at Blockstream. But what was interesting is um, it quickly became more than just Blockstream, right? It it was some of these other groups of developers at MIT, at ChainCode Labs that were not affiliated with Blockstream um, that were starting to to echo some of the same concerns. Um, This would be now in in early 2017, um, especially. And around that time, we had the emergence of SegWit2x, and the infamous New York agreement, which is, which was basically, uh, uh ostensibly going to be a, a grand solution that everybody, um, was ultimately happy with some compromise where all the major businesses got together, the exchanges, the wallets, um, all of the major miners, uh, flew in from China, um, and, uh, and, and met at consensus. And, and I believe Blockstream and, and some of the core developers were invited, but, um, as this agreement was "quote unquote" passed, it didn't necessarily have much, if any, developer buy-in. It was just something that the 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 vested, moneyed interests uh, that were building infrastructure around Bitcoin had uh, you know, essentially agreed must happen, right, or mm-hmm. or else, kind of right. Um, and that was we're going to incorporate this new technology, SegWit, which the core developers um, were were favorable on and, and believed could be implemented. And achieve some of the same scalability benefits, but um, they would do that at the same time that there was a doubling of of the block size. Mm-hmm. Um, so everybody gets a little bit, and then we can just kind of move move beyond this. Um, the core developers, uh, Blockstream included, basically said "fuck that," <laughs> well, <laughs> which 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 on on the surface, right, uh, seems like you know heels were dug in and 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 there was a bit of of obstinance. Of so what? Um, why was it? Why was that so? You know, controversial, right? Uh, you talked right. a little bit about the, the the technical, you know, being you know safe and secure and thoughtful about upgrades, but but why exactly was that uh, ultimately a, a
1: nonstarter? Right. So first of all, I, I don't remember anyone from MIT, DCI, or Chaincode uh, saying anything contrary to uh, I think what a lot of the Blockstream people thought at the time. But anyways, we can skip that. Um, no, I I, I I agree with you. I, I, yeah. I think it, oh, okay. it, it wasn't just Blockstream, right? Right, right. Okay, okay, okay. Yeah. Neither Blockstream nor any of those other core developers. Yes, okay, okay, okay. Sorry, Sorry. Yeah, edit that out. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, so I think the crux of the issue is you can't compromise. And mm-hmm. a lot of that is projected on the the developers because they say, why can't you just compromise? But it's not something they can compromise on because it is a decentralized network and there are more stakeholders here than just businesses, mining pools, exchanges, etc., And including developers, there are the users of the network. And that was why the UASF happened. And that was why uh, no two X happened because you can't just say unilaterally, we decided something and it's going to happen. Like, Yes, you can decide that for yourself, but you're going to fork off the network. Mm -hmm. And it's even not that simple because the miners have to get paid. Actually, let me correct that. The mining pools have their customers, which are the miners, and the miners need to get paid. But it's the mining pools that are signing agreements and saying, we support this thing, which they can't do. But even the, the actual miners didn't like that because that's their bread and butter. They've invested money in this hardware infrastructure and if you fork off, then they're not gonna get paid. Mm -hmm. So it was, uh, I think, uh, I forgot who set it up, but someone set up a poll for the Bitcoin developers and asked them, what do you think of 2x? And they all commented on this thing and said, no, 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 no. And I think uh, Matt Corallo said, LOL or something like that. But yeah, the sentiment was largely like, F you guys, this is ridiculous. Mm -hmm. And that's echoed by the users. And ultimately it's the users that matter because if you're a user or a hodler of Bitcoin, then you get to decide what happens. If uh, other people want to fork off, they can always fork off and make their own chain, which is, as you know, what we saw happened. And those two other chains aren't doing that well. Actually, not two. There's 10, 20 other Bitcoin forks and none of them Mm -hmm. are doing very well. So Bitcoin is still Bitcoin and what they wanted could never have come to pass because it wasn't for them to decide and it wasn't for the Bitcoin developers to decide.
0: You know, there's a little bit of like a, a winner's narrative here that that you're projecting. Uh, and, and, you know, winners do write the history, right? Um, when you say, oh, well, they can just fork off. In reality, it did look like um, it was going to go the other direction, right? Where for, for a while, at least, it looked like um, the major exchanges and wallets would support this larger fork and ultimately take their... Customer assets with them, Um, and ultimately they kind of laid down arms uh, in November of of, of 2017, and that was actually the beginning of of the the real mega spike in in the market. Um, The uh, technically speaking, Bitcoin Cash, which was the fork, it happened in August, and and, you know Bitmain and Jihan and and Roger Vera were were, uh, kind of at the fore of that. that early hard fork, which was really designed to be a, a just-in-case type of maneuver, right? Just in case Segwit2x is canceled and, and um, you know, folks, you know, renege on the New York agreement that we reached compromise and, and hard fork into this larger, you know, kind of new system, we will split the network and, and we're just going to unilaterally increase the block size. So Bitcoin mm-hmm. Cash was technically earlier than when this was called off, confusingly, but it really picked up steam after the agreement was called off because then many of those, you know, disenfranchised thought, well, you know what, fine. We've, we've had a fork. Confidence is lost. We're just, we're going to go our own direction. Mm-hmm. And yes, uh, that ended up being the, the losing side, or at least it certainly appears that way now um, that it's trading around, you know, 5% of what Bitcoin is. But um, I want to talk about, um, so I, I, from a from a third party right outside looking in i would argue that um one of the most influential people in that saga was you um not necessarily from a negotiating standpoint but from the from the memes right like the hats like the the trump hats make bitcoin great again and uasf and and no two x right um there there was a viral components um and kind of guerrilla marketing component that, that seemed very effective um, as you kind of build up the narrative around, uh, you know, taking on what seemed at the time to be 90% of, you know, the, the meaningful executives in the industry if, mm. if, if you're looking for leadership. Right. Yeah. Um, what, what, what do you think? Um, what do you think was the most important um, thing that you got right as part of that strategy or, 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 um, was this something that that was kind of a, a an organic uh, effort? Uh, how much of it was just you? How much of it was Blockstream? Um, and um, and and ultimately, what do you think that says about kind of the, the current state of the "quote unquote" community right now uh, when it comes to you know crypto Twitter and Reddit and um, just this very snarky um, at times you know vitriolic uh, community of uh, of common commenters. Um, Because I think there was a method to the madness and it worked. Um, But now is that just always going to be in like the Bitcoin DNA?
1: Oh, a lot of questions. So I guess going back to your first comment, uh, I kind of expected it would have failed. A lot of people were nervous at the time, like, because it did look very threatening. You have all these Mm -hmm. companies saying something. And I actually called... I predicted failure of a lot of the previous attacks. So classic XT, BU. I I pretty much said that this is dead and then it died shortly after, but, um, the 2X one did look probably more threatening, but I think the Bitcoin ecosystem built up a lot of immunity from dealing with the previous forks. Mm -hmm. And if they did actually go through with 2X, it could have done a lot of damage, but I think ultimately, like they could have split and took their users and said, this is Bitcoin now, but I don't think uh, they would have won like without a fight. It it might've fractured everything more, but it's hard to say because, you know, Jihan did push out his uh, Jihan activated fork later on, which created Bitcoin cash. So you could say that if they won, that would have happened too. And I think that corporate controlled coin would have, decrease in value over time it may have been worse it it might have been more protracted if they had went ahead with it instead of giving up but i think in the long run uh the real bitcoin the original chain would have uh, um, won out in the end because i think money ultimately wants to be free and that's why people like bitcoin because it is a political free moving free-flowing money that nobody controls so the more free Bitcoin would have been the one that went out in the end anyways, even if that one was a smaller one at that split, if that split had happened. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think the hats were, I didn't really expect that they would do that. I was making them for fun just because I thought it's interesting. You could wear a hat with a, a fun slogan on it or something like that. But the UASF hat probably took off because people wanted a way to signal, because there was a lot of signaling going on. There's signaling from the exchanges, uh, from people mm-hmm. signing letters, uh, from mining pools declaring stuff or flagging things in their um, in their you know advertisements on the Coinbase, right? Like saying I support this. And I think average users on Twitter and other places wanted something they could use to signal. And the hat was just a convenient thing because you can take a picture with the hat and that's your profile picture and you can say mm-hmm. a message, right? Or if you're doing a podcast talking about something, you can wear the hat and it's visible. So mm-hmm. I think it's a practical instrument and it probably served the purpose as the kind of a rallying cry, uh, also making the, the hashtag tick off a bit because it's UASF and it sounded cool, right? It's like mm-hmm. USA, USAF. Um, but I think uh, that, that kind of uh, meme culture is part of Bitcoin and it mm-hmm. is part of uh, uh, the people that make up Bitcoin and use Bitcoin.
0: Going forward a little bit, um, that... Uh, you know, the, the original XRP army was the, you know, Bitcoin maximalists, right? And we'll, we'll talk about that narrative in general, right? Which was another meme and 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 very savvy, you know, marketing move, you could argue by Vitalik, uh, as, as, you know, he kind of reframed the attacks uh, that, that he was getting from, from the Bitcoin crowd. Um, what, um, you know, is there, um, is that coming down to earth a little bit, uh, do you think, or, or or are we just getting started from a um, from an aggressiveness standpoint? Because you know the the, the Bitcoin community that has remained has been um, viciously anti any other asset. Which I understood the hyperbole and the and the the viciousness around the, the kind of fight for the soul of Bitcoin itself, right? Mm-hmm. But. It, it has always struck me as insanely short-sighted or or or, or narrow for um, folks that believe so strongly in Bitcoin uh, to just immediately write off any other assets and, and their their potential and the protocol's potential. Um, and And, in fact, you know even a couple of weeks ago that you know with with adam uh, I had an exchange on Twitter where you know i'm at sometimes i'm i 'm just scratching my head like why are you picking some of these fights still? It's right like haven't haven 't we moved up the the value chain and like found bigger bosses to to focus on now with Bitcoin at one hundred and thirty billion in market cap versus um in some respects you know punching down at times when at the end of the day, most of this other uh, tech, technology, not the other assets, but at least the other technology could be repurposed and, and ultimately very valuable, generally speaking, um, whether that anchors back to Bitcoin or some other blockchain.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, uh, are you kind of hinting at uh, your Ethereum support and being attacked for that by Bitcoin maximalists? Well, I mean,
0: I, I don't look, I, I don't care. Uh, the, the, the irony is, you know, 90% of my portfolio is in Bitcoin and Zcash, which is a fork of Bitcoin. Um, so, so like, I never really understood why, you know, I was considered a, and, you know, an ETH fanatic. Um, but it is where a lot of the interesting experiments are happening. Right. So, um, so I, I, I don't think that that should just be like automatically shut down and, and, you know, kind of kicked to the side and written off as a scam. There are a lot of scams in crypto that, uh, I, I think the, the industry needs to do a better job of self-policing, but, um, but not necessarily, not good faith efforts? How? Where do you come down on all this? Because you're, you know, you're pretty outspoken yourself still.
1: <laughs> so I guess it largely has to do with uh, what do you define as good faith effort, right? Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of the hate directed at Ethereum is justified because of the pre-mine, the way it's been marketed and sold to people. Like this is the future. A lot of their marketing was like in the early days was this is the better Bitcoin, it's scalable, it's the next generation. And I think that is why a lot of people have a beef with Ethereum because it is scammy in that they pre-mined 72 million Ether, sold a little bit to the public and made a lot of promises that they never deliver on. And they do a lot of uh, pretty bad software engineering too, like a lot of hacks, the Dow hack, the hack. And the less just goes on and on. The most recent thing was they forgot their hard fork to postpone the ice age. So two weeks later, exchanges have to do another hard fork. Um, the fact that a lot of their nodes are centralized onto Infira or just Amazon, uh, DigitalOcean or Alien or all these services, like it's really the representation of the project. I think that irks a lot of people in Bitcoin because it's the mm-hmm. antithesis, uh, antithesis of Bitcoin in every single way which is Bitcoin is pretty humble. It doesn't promise to do anything and it's, it serves its function well and it functions well, it's decentralized, but Ethereum is kind of the opposite. And I think that's largely why there's a lot of hate. Uh, but personally, like I get called a Bitcoin Maximus, but I don't think I fit the max, like it depends what you call a maximalist. Like is the maximalist the guy that likes Bitcoin and hates everything else or thinks Bitcoin is the best and probably wouldn't touch anything else, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think Bitcoin is number one and I wouldn't touch anything else myself, but I also don't hate on other projects that are not scammy in nature. Mm-hmm. So I think, uh, I, I was on Peter McCormack's show a long time ago and we talked about Bitcoin cash and B cash and stuff like that. And I said, I have no problem with it, but it's just how it's marketed that this is the real Bitcoin that really bothers me. And that's why I go on the offensive and I attack it because that's just a lie and Mm -hmm. that's just misleading people and then they're using like bitcoin.com to convince people to buy bcash by putting it first when you hit buy bitcoin it's just a horrible thing that tricks a lot of people and it damages i think the rest of the industry
0: if um if things had gone the other way and and in a parallel universe segwit 2x gets approved and the new york agreement is basically ratified and, and there's a hard fork upgrade in 2017 to bigger blocks with segwit And all of a sudden, the the new minority fork um, is the one megablock core developer, you know, uh, preferred uh, chain. Would you be saying the same thing? Um, Would 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 or would the larger Bitcoin that had won out
1: um, be the new? I think the larger one is the new one. It's the same thing with Ethereum. So Ethereum Classic is the original, ETH ticker is the new one, and it goes Mm back back to the rules. census rules. If you change the rules, the new one is different. It's a different chain, technically. And that would be the same if the NYA guys had won, theirs would be, you know, a new Bitcoin. But mm-hmm. the, everyone on the Bitcoin maximal side saying, this one is the original one, they're actually correct. And it would be the same for anyone saying ETC is the original. I would agree with them. That is the original mm-hmm. one. And mm-hmm. they are correct, too.
0: Yep, and and some of this just goes into like IP and naming and brands and you know mm-hmm. uh, and, and whatnot, which is maybe a, a different legal, more boring conversation, but interesting nonetheless. Um, the um, so, so, you know we've we've obviously covered a lot of ground so far. I, I think you know we're and and we haven't even started talking about you know actual Bitcoin you know upgrades in in uh, you know two thousand twenty the twenty twenty. It's like I'm, I'm still I don't know how to say it yet. Um, because it's so foreign to me that we got to start saying 20, uh, 20. And, then, and then the number. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Instead of just 2000, whatever. Um, so, uh, but, but I, I do want to maybe just, you know, have a, I'm going to get completely slammed if I just let you, uh, go willy nilly with all those comments and, and don't raise any objections. So, so the first one being, you know, the pre-mine itself, um, with Ethereum, do you not think that that was necessary? Because you know you're talking about an environment in, in 2014 when this happened, when when Bitcoin was already well established, that you're not going to be able to recreate the miracle of, of Bitcoin, right? I think about what's happening with Grin right now. Think about the performance of Zcash. The last I don't, no one will ever do a launch like Zcash or Grin again, because um, you just know that it's going to be impossible to build a community when there's just years, decades of inflation. That you're behind the eight ball on, right? So, so you have to think about other novel distribution schemes. And and um, the original crowd sale for Ethereum was relatively novel. You could argue, you know, Mastercoin had done that previously, but but it was not like they were. Um, and also, Iran that was coming up with, uh, you know, this this scheme to defraud a bunch of investors through this new, you know, crowd sale because they wrote they wrote a white paper about it that was. There was quite a bit more of an organic community that that had developed in the previous, you know, eight nine months, um, and it, to me, it just like that feels different. Now you can quabble over whether that centralized too much of the early power um, and whether the the proportions were wrong, but but I'm not sure that I necessarily you know agree with that. From a security standpoint, um, I, I don't want to debate that because you know we could go all on all day long, point by point. But but maybe the better one to talk about is. Uh, your points on security, which I think are, are accurate. Um, and really, it comes down to the the, the uh, attack vectors uh, for Bitcoin versus Ethereum versus, you know, all of these other blockchains. Um, right. And Bitcoin by design has been, you know, developed as this, you know, uh, Bitcoin is NASA and Ethereum is, you know, fill in blanks, you know, uh, playing a little bit faster and looser and, you know, move fast and break things. So, you know, they're, it's Facebook or, or, you know, a Silicon Valley tech startup. Um, do you, um, is is that an important culture to maintain above all else, right? It, it, it seems as though from a core developer standpoint, um, that's one of the foundational principles of Bitcoin. Is like, don't fucking break anything, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Um, and, and because of that divide, I just wonder if, you know, if that makes it okay, right? If, if you know that, you know, Ethereum is, you know, what you see is what you get. We're, we're moving fast. We're trying a lot of experiments and we're trying to kind of build this thing in mid-air versus the slow methodical approach to Bitcoin, which, you know, some would argue is single purpose for asset settlement. Um, is, that, is that enough of a disclaimer or, or uh, do you still just not buy it? because I, I, I at a certain point, it doesn't matter what the original creators marketed as. Mm-hmm. what matters is what people view it as today, and this already okay. happened with Bitcoin. so why is Ethereum any different?
1: Well, there's a lot of ways to kick off a project like you don't need to raise that much money to start a project like you have Monero, which is an organic project, it's maintained, they have a development team they don't uh They didn't pre-mine and they have no like uh, reward sharing from block rewards like Zcash does, right? So Zcash also kind of kicked itself off by splitting off a part of the block reward to pay themselves. Mm -hmm. But it's not like every project needs to pre-mine or do that. Like if it's a viable project, I think you can find funding or people will work on it organically. And I think the question is really when it's not organic and it's promising something that they cannot deliver on, that is probably what makes it scammy or makes people call it a scam because that doesn't look very honest. And I think if these projects took a different route, people would not be so hard on them. But I mean, there's just like a long track record of Ethereum promising things and shifting goalposts goalposts, uh, whenever, right? Like they're supposed to transition to proof of stake and they haven't done that, they keep deferring it. And this is kind of the stuff that irks Bitcoin people because it's just uh, laughable to watch and well I, you know that that's, really is that's the nature of
0: software development in general though come on I mean how how long is it take you know the sidechains white paper came out in 2014 right like right. Uh, you know so so I guess point being you know it goes both ways um, in terms of you know hitting milestones and and some of that is just because it's it's more difficult to work at a predictable pace when it is a decentralized stack.
1: Right, but Bitcoin never promises anything. So next year in 2020, we're, we will likely see Taproot and Schnorr. But there's no date. There's no promise. There's no hype around it saying, get ready, guys. Buy your Bitcoin now because Schnorr is coming. That's like what Ethereum will do. But Bitcoin doesn't do that. It just happens when it happens organically. And I think that's a big differentiator between the two projects.
0: Why... Um... I mean, we're going to agree to disagree on that. You know, I, I, I understand where you're coming from. I, I, I also understand kind of the other, you know, the, the, the rebuttals to this, I, the bigger question for me, just from a practical standpoint is why pick that fight, right. Or, or, or why continue to, to, to drum that narrative because you know, we're at the point now where, where Bitcoin is is quite literally an order of magnitude larger. I don't know any institutional investor that takes um, Ethereum seriously versus Bitcoin. Um, the maybe someday they will right after this transition of proof of stake um if it's successful and and if you know it some happens. of this well yeah it it is uh, an open point right if if it happens is is you know certainly not a, a guarantee because this is still kind of an unproven transition but um re- regardless the the here and now it seems as though um the scaling challenges ahead which we are going to finally talk about which i'm excited about um the scaling challenges ahead, and, and some of the other features that that you know the Bitcoin community and and broader develop uh, developer circle can solve, like that's just it, it's so much more important than than worrying about what you know if you if you want to be honest, like worrying about what the kids are doing, uh, which 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 might be the uh, approach that or the mindset that most Bitcoin you know core developers have. Um, like, well, let's go into an example. Like, so, let, 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 why, why, not, why not just you know, focus on you know, your own house and your own barbecue
1: and like, let, the, let the kids play back in the sandbox? Because it's entertaining. I mean, let's take an example. The Ethereum double hard fork. <laughs> like, what, what is the right thing to do there? Like, For the sake of the industry, we should say nothing and go, oh, that's good. They're doing another hard fork two weeks after that one. I hope everyone upgrades in time. I don't think that's likely. It's more likely that people go, LOL you idiots Mm -hmm. (laughs) you forgot something and that's really stupid you know i think that's more likely to happen because it is amusing to watch these slow motion train wrecks happen and you know at (laughs) At least uh, least
0: you're honest man
1: (laughs) yeah i'm honest like if ethereum (laughs) 2.0 does not pre-sell a token and they just build it i don't think a lot of bitcoiners would Critique, critique them, but the likelihood is they're probably going to sell a token to fund the ETH 2.0. I don't know what's going to happen exactly, but if you look at what they did for Raiden, which is supposed to be the Ethereum Lightning Network, they sold a token for Raiden. They didn't need to sell a token for Raiden. They raised like $20 million, probably more, because the price went up after that. Mm-hmm. And where's Raiden? Right? It's nowhere. And this is the stuff that people will pick on them for because it just it looks bad, and it is bad for everyone that bought into that. And I think it's not, I don't critique people for buying it. Like if you buy Ethereum or Zcash, you know, go for it. You know, it's your money, do whatever you want. But I would critique the people behind it because I think they're misrepresenting things and promising things they can't deliver. But that's just speaking for me. I can't speak for other people in Bitcoin.
0: And, and I guess the core difference is you're saying, you know, they're promising things that they can't deliver. Um, and you're, you're using that as if it's 100%. They cannot deliver. Whereas, uh, I guess the the devil's advocate or, or the, the counter to that would be, yeah, maybe there's an 80 percent chance of failure or higher. But um, why wouldn't we at least try, right? Um, so that there's there's you know some of these other um, blockchains and protocols out there. Because, I mean, you've been around long enough in tech in general. You know how many disastrous you know, open source and centralized, you know, software stacks. There are, uh, it's, it's not as if this is a unique, um, uh, dynamic to have a, an open source protocol. It's got severe deficiencies, but a, a large developer ecosystem that's working to patch them and, and, you know, pull things together. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, which I think is probably the, the strongest counter narrative to this,
1: but, but there is a point I'll, that I'll we both agree have, on. That. I'll let you have the, the last word. Well, there is a point we both agree on. I think it's good to experiment with the technology and build stuff. So Mm -hmm. it's like some people don't even like liquid because it's not Bitcoin. But I think liquid is good because it bridges a lot of things to Bitcoin because Bitcoin is the native Mm -hmm. currency of liquid. So if we... This is why we're doing liquid securities. Like That's an initiative, an initiative that I pushed pretty hard to do because if you can have securities issued on liquid blockchain, it settles with Bitcoin. It makes it easy to trade those things with Bitcoin to atomic swaps or whatever and easy to move between different uh, trading platforms and venues too. Like, I, I like that kind of stuff because it helps Bitcoin in the long run. If you want Bitcoin to grow to several trillion dollars, well, what, what better way than to have the security markets linked to Bitcoin in some way, easily. Mm-hmm. like I think stablecoins are great for trading. They're a very effective tool for trading and arbitrage. I have nothing against them, right? Um, so there, there's things like I don't critique because I, I think they're useful, but what I will critique and bash on is things I think are just ridiculous. Like, Depos is kind of stupid too. You know, It's proof of stake, but delegated. So what's the point? You just delegated your proof of stake things to some other guy, and they're holding everything now, so mm-hmm. how is that different from just the centralized database?
0: Which which we're kind of seeing play out in real time with EOS. Uh, yeah. So, um, well, we we uh, I don't uh, I'm already going to get enough shit for this interview anyway, so I don't want to get too far down like the mudslinging okay. uh, route uh, with with respect to other tokens. Um, but uh, over beers, of course, uh, people know that I'm pretty snarky on on a lot of this stuff as is. Um, let, let's, let's talk about kind of where Bitcoin is going, right? So, so you know, the, really the meat of this conversation, I think it was important to have a lot of this um, back history for people, especially going into the new year because um, we, we sometimes forget that the, the audience and the community grows by, you know, an order of magnitude every market cycle. So by definition, 90% of the people that are even full time and like down the rabbit hole, just don't have some of this historical context. Um, they just say they just see like oh here's here's you know the, the guy is part of the magical crypto friends and he's you know very snarky on Twitter and and I don't like him because he bashes Ethan he's mean to me um, but but they might not necessarily know you know some of the battle scars behind it and 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 some of the the, the perspective that kind of informs it um, the uh, looking forward though this is probably the most excited I've been. Uh, about Bitcoin and, and kind of where it is from a development cycle, um, just technically speaking, uh, in terms of some of the things that seem to be coming around the corner. So um, in my eyes, there's there's basically, you know, four major things. Um, uh, and and i had written about this in my uh, crypto theses for 2020, which I'll link to in the show notes. Um, but Lucas Nuzi uh, from, uh, from Digital Asset Research had a fantastic map of all the different um, layer two or or, or affiliated um, uh, upgrades and, and projects that are are currently underway, just with Bitcoin, um, and I'd say the four biggest are probably uh, layer two payments, so so Lightning Network um, for sure, which which has been I think properly hyped, but still very early. Um, side chains. We, we already talked a bit about Liquid, so so maybe we won't spend time there. Um, uh, some of the mining upgrades, uh, better hash and, and and the like, that are, are actually making this you know as decentralized as possible and maintaining that element of of Bitcoin. Um, and then finally, it's it's everything to do with uh, with privacy and, and additional scaling, um, which comes back to Schnorr and, and Taproot. So there's a lot of jargon and all these things, right? So um, I think Lightning may be the best understood out of those side chains we covered. Let's talk about the nitty-gritty and 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 this thing called Schnorr signatures that everybody is hot and bothered about in the Bitcoin community. It it really seems like the linchpin for a lot of the upgrades um, that folks want to make for Layer Two or for privacy or or you know really a whole host of of um, coming solutions in, in 2020 and beyond. So so what what are Schnorr signatures? Um, and how can you kind of explain them in layman's terms um, versus like you know SegWit or, or as a complement to SegWit? All
1: right, so Schnorr signatures are just another signature type. They're meant to replace ECDSA, which is uh, the old one. They're, they're, I think ECDSA was originally meant to, was created so that open source projects could use this uh, because Schnorr was uh, patented at the time. The patent expired and now I think uh, it's time to roll it up into Bitcoin and that's what the developers have been working on but it allows for um, more compact signature uh, compact signature signature aggregation and it helps Bitcoin to scale somewhat because everything is more compact um, but it is a it's not a very exciting thing that most people will get excited about. Like, I think developers and people building stuff in this space get excited about it.
0: Mm-hmm. It
1: allows you to do, I think, larger multi-sig transactions as well. And yeah, it's not, I think a lot of the Bitcoin developments happening currently. There's a lot of stuff going on, but it's getting to the point where it's uh, less, I guess news for the average user, the average user will probably be more excited about things like the lightning network and what it means for them, because that's something they can actually play with right away and understand. Whereas developers and protocol developers specifically are more interested to follow what's happening with uh, Bitcoin at the base layer.
0: Well uh, let's, let's talk about um, the, some of the things that Schnorr does enable though, right? We, we can talk about lightning last maybe. Um, But, uh, but, but, for, you know, new privacy tools, uh, and, and kind of feature upgrades, it is, it's critical, um, to just essentially automate something like CoinJoin. So, so, you know, making it harder for transactions to be traced and then ultimately marked or blacklisted, um, by some authority, uh, which would maybe threaten the, the fungibility of, of, mm-hmm. of Bitcoin. So it, it it's boring, but important, right? I, I think maybe we can gonna yeah. unpack the privacy and, and, and any other elements and why, like the hardcore group of not just developers, but like the libertarian crowd and like the, the OG crowd, um, why they're so excited and like what some of the applications are that, that are gonna be unlocked here.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I actually haven't read up on what they're excited about. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't think I can answer I just, that right now.
0: As 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 a non engineer, I just I just caught uh, Samson with his pants down, which is maybe the, the highlight of my uh, of of my Bitcoin technical uh, career. Uh, <laughs> Congratulations! <laughs> um, all right, so I'll I'll belly out then. We'll, uh, we'll 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 maybe focus. I'll, I'll try to get Matt on um, for for an episode early next year, um, and we'll talk about yeah. some of the, the the stuff that he's doing at Square Crypto too. But um, so let's talk about lightning. So this is another area that Blockstream has spent, you know, uh, a bit of time and energy along with Lightning Labs and, and a few other groups that are building here. Um, I was uh, I was disappointed uh, in in the pace at which you know lightning kind of came to market this year. Maybe my expectations were too unrealistically high. Um, but what um, First of all, what, what is Lightning and like the 30-second variety? And then and then kind of where do you see some of the most important upgrades um, and developments in, in 2020?
1: Right. So Lightning is a way to do payments with Bitcoin. So where Bitcoin fails and falls short is it's not good for uh, small, fast transactions just because there is a 10-minute block time no matter how you hack it. So Lightning is almost free and instantaneous. So you can create these things called channels and... Basically route Bitcoin through these channels to other people on the network. And it's meant to facilitate payments. Uh, there's a lot of big developments happening with Lightning. so multipath uh, sorry multi-part payments is one of the things that just got announced recently. It's now in C Lightning. So that's a way for you to open multiple channels and route through multiple channels to create one big payment, which should alleviate some of the problems we had earlier, which is payments fail because there's not enough capacity in the channel. Or in, in routing so this helps with that which will hopefully lead to more mainstream adoption but I think it's still really early for lightning if you look at it I think it probably kicked off in 2018 um, there's been a lot of growth actually in 2019 too but we've seen a lot of that taper off because they're uh, sorry private channels were introduced which makes it harder to see um, how much capacity there is on the network but By our estimates, I think there's probably 40% more capacity not visible than what we see right now. Mm -hmm. So I think the growth has been fast, but it's also very hard to use. I think 2020 is when we're actually going to see a lot of things happen because 2019 is foundational building uh, the building blocks. So for C-Lightning, we implemented plugins to make it more configurable and customizable for people. But I think 2020 is when we'll see people using those building blocks and improve stability to really build stuff on top of it. But ultimately, if point of sales terminals implement Lightning, that's when it will really take off. Right now, it's still hard to use relatively because you have to do a lot of stuff. You have to manage your channels, and it's kind of like similar to running a Bitcoin node. Most people won't run a Bitcoin node because it's cumbersome. Those use like a, a web a web wallet or SPV wallet.
0: Do you really think it's going to take off though you know i i've I've wondered quite a bit this past year if um, if the usability of lightning is overshadowed by just the tax consequences and and some of the other you know components maybe this is a very like u s centric way of thinking about the the solution, but it strikes me that um you know, in the U.S., I, I'm just trying to think of like the the tax reporting consequences as is of, of of using crypto for anything other than speculation. Mm-hmm. It's um, it just seems like a uh, like a, a disaster on one hand, and and then you know the other element is you, you do have stable coins now, which provide you know similar functionality in theory, um, that uh, that you know ultimately might be more compelling because you know people recognize it's digital, unseizable, you know, store of value, like U.S. dollar pegged, that might come with its own set of risks, but at least for the time you're using it as cash, it's, you know, it works pretty well. Um, I wonder uh, where you're coming out on this because the the volatility issue, the, the usability and tax issue, um, all these things seem to be, you know, kind of compounding against, Lightning um, versus some of the alternatives that might be built on Ethereum right now, and um, you know we can argue all 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 you want about you know whether Ethereum is a scam or you know the the, the tech stacks the house of cards and 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 whatnot. But uh, at the end of the day, the users don't give a shit, right? If if the UX works and it looks like it's dollar denominated and it's mm-hmm. it's going to be straightforward, you know, I, I wonder you know how how you think about that, or or if you um, just disagree fundamentally and think, well, you know, the use case that I have in mind is wrong. You brought up point of sale, but I would think maybe it's something else that that ultimately catalyzes lightning growth.
1: Well, I I think if you're using Bitcoin or anything else to pay, like you can use ether, I think, also at uh, various shops, I think. Uh, Who was it? Gemini rolled something out. I forgot in a partnership with who. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So they allow you to pay with crypto too. So the taxation s- uh, situation would be the same for a lightning payment. And that too, I would think. Right. Mm-hmm. So I don't think the the tax issues are going to be the same thing. Uh, it's well, going to be a challenge.
0: Well, I wasn't thinking about paying in Ether. I was thinking about paying in a stable coin. But if you're paying in, uh, in a stable coin that doesn't really fluctuate in value, then, then you don't have the same concerns as, you know, I bought Bitcoin at Thirteen thousand. It went down to seven, and then it went up to twenty. And and you know, I got to track my cost basis every single time I buy a fucking cup of coffee because that's the country we live in. Um, really? You know. <laughs> I, well, I mean, yeah, in the U.S., this is a longer conversation again. But but right. maybe it's um, it's looking externally or looking at other use cases. Um,
1: yeah, but if you're going to have to track every. Every payment, yeah. you'd have to do that with uh, Bitcoin too, if you're just paying with regular yeah. on-chain Bitcoin. I don't think yeah. Lightning solves or makes it worse in any way. It's just easier yeah. to use. But maybe that is a barrier for some people because they don't want to pay with something, right? Um,
0: exactly. So it's, it's less about Lightning versus layer one and more about Lightning versus stable coin alternatives that might exist on another blockchain now.
1: Right, but I don't think anyone is using stable, fo- stable coins for payment either right now, like to buy a coffee, right? because it's mainly a tool for traders to sit in a stable coin or to use it to move fluidly between exchanges to arb. Mm-hmm. But I, I could potentially see someday people might use a stable coin, but that's also uh, challenging because I think a lot of countries want to issue their own sovereign national currency, digital national currencies too. So that would compete with a stablecoin. Ultimately I think whatever is more open and free will be the winner. So say you have a, Uh, uh, something issued from the federal reserve and you have uh, other stable coins. I think if uh, the federal Federal reserve puts a lot of restrictions and limits on it, then it'll probably fail compared to the more open ones. But uh, I don't know. I think uh, people would want to pay with Bitcoin eventually. And it largely has to do with how lightning enables a circular economy where you can earn and spend. So if you're earning your pay in, in Bitcoin over lightning or, then you could spend it easily too. And I don't know if you'd have to, yeah, the tax situation, in the U S is pretty convoluted. So I'm not sure how it would impact, but like, let's say uh, you're living in some other country like uh, in South America or something, and you get paid for your contracting outsourcing work, then you could possibly spend it if like it is accepted at different businesses via some point of sales terminal that supports lightning. I think Mm -hmm. that's where it's powerful because it can replace cash
0: yep um, makes sense well, time will tell what what are um, What are some of the other themes for uh, for the year that you're most excited about, either at blockstream
1: or or more broadly so for 2020 mm. Mm-hmm. So, this year we had our first Simplicity transaction using Elements. So, Simplicity is a smart contracting language that uh, we've been working on here at Blockstream, and I'm hoping that next year we can get it into Liquid so we can start playing around with some, uh, some of the smart contracting stuff on Liquid, and potentially someday that could make its way into Bitcoin, too, if uh, there's consensus about adding it. Mm-hmm. Um, what else is interesting at Blockstream? Uh, we, do, we did a few other things, too. We have a mini-sketch and mini-script. Uh, So mini-sketch is a way to improve, uh, I guess, optimize network traffic for Bitcoin. Mini-script is a way to simplify Bitcoin script. So it's like a mini version of Bitcoin script that makes it harder to screw up with Bitcoin script because Bitcoin script is very hard right now. Mm -hmm. If you look at mini-script, it's kind of like... When you have uh, algebraic equations with the order of operations, that kind of makes it more readable and easy for people to use. So people might be more willing to make Bitcoin smart contracts using script. Uh, But down the road, I think simplicity is where it's going to be, uh, and there will be a lot of focus on that because you can do much more advanced stuff using simplicity.
0: Excellent. Well, uh, it's been uh, it's been a fun conversation. Uh, it's always a pleasure to catch up, and uh, I, I hope people enjoyed uh, watching uh, this episode as as uh, much as I enjoyed uh, catching up and, and taking a stroll down memory lane and all the chaos that's uh, we've we've lived through in the industry. Um, where uh, where can people find you on Twitter, and uh, and how can they get involved if uh, if they're interested in learning more about Blockstream?
1: Sure. So on Twitter, my handle is Excellion, E-X-C-E-L-L-I-O-N. And for Blockstream, we have a lot of materials available at blockstream.com. I think we localize into 10 plus languages. So all of our blog posts and things are available if you're interested to read up on that stuff.
0: Excellent. Well, uh, Samson, thanks again. Uh, And uh, to everybody watching, I look forward to all the trolling, uh, hysterical comments that I'm inevitably going to get from hosting this very entertaining conversation. Um, with uh, with Samson now. So uh, thanks again, man. And uh, we'll catch up real soon.
1: Thanks, Ryan. It's good chatting. Cheers. So next time.
0: Peace. That's a wrap. Thanks for listening. New episodes of Unqualified Opinions go live weekdays at noon Eastern time. You can follow me in the meantime on Twitter at 2BitIdiot. If you want to continue the conversation or troll me. Otherwise, I'll see you next week.